Your Honor, Jeff Sheik, representing Mr. King, may it please the court and counsel. Uh, Mr. King uh, brought causes of action against the Guardian Ad Litem program for uh, whistleblower age, race, and gender discrimination. Um, and I'm going to be focusing on uh, the Minnesota Whistleblower Act um, as far as uh, my main argument, but certainly we'll take any questions relating to the other uh, causes of actions. Um, Mr. King started his employment in 2002. Um, ultimately, he became the um, Guardian Ad Litem District Manager um, in 2017. Julie, uh, in July, uh, Miss Treble became his manager. But prior to that, he had an excellent work history. Miss um, Treble, um, and once she got in as manager, um, was informed by Mr. King on October 5th, 2017, that there was some discrepancies um, with um, the reporting as far as which. Judicial districts would get certain amounts of money and that the judicial districts were uh, informed of these um, discrepancies and so that it was uh, Thought that some of the judicial districts were trying to keep the cases open in juvenile court um, On that on that point counsel, I was going to ask you what's your best case that that was protected conduct? That 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 actual report where he's indicating to um, in the October 5th where he says it's spurious conduct it's our position that that basically is equivalent to fraudulent conduct. And there's a Minnesota statute that we were asking under, it was like 609, where that public funding should not be, um, you know, frivolously spent or in a manner that, you know, Mr. King um, knew or should have known about. So it's our position that he was um, basically required or mandated to report that to Ms. Treble. And there was some testimony um, from other people that that was would be considered fraudulent conduct and that he should in fact report that to Miss Treble and that would be protected conduct. And Thank it's our, you. Okay. Thank you, Your Honor. And it's our position that that issue was conceded, but I understand that ultimately the court will make that decision. Um, but it's our position that that was conceded by the state um, and that the whistleblower law is pretty broad and, and has been recently amended, at least in the last five or six years. As far well, as uh, I, it's it's not argued, counsel. I you you, uh, I was just curious because it's it's an unusual uh, type of protected conduct in my experience with these kinds of cases. I will agree with that, Your Honor. Thank you. So then, within and I know the courts have been, um, you know, kind of um, all over the board as far as uh, what constitutes a reasonable amount of time after the protected conduct is uh, reported and the adverse action. Um, our, on my, in our brief on pages uh, 47 through 52, we do outline um, the nexus or the causation argument, which I think I would like to be focusing on the most. Then I'd like to focus on the, um, the reasons for the termination, which, you know, it's our position were pretextual in nature. Um, but basically, there's about a six-month period um, from when Mr. Uh, King reports the conduct um, to when he is terminated or, or, or put on notice for termination. Then ensues approximately a five-month termination um, investigation. And then on March 6, 2018, which is about five months later, almost to the day, um, he's noticed for termination. Um, there was some discussion by the trial court that Miss um, Treble did, in fact, uh, you know, thank him for his um, reporting of this conduct. It's our position that that was, you know, kind of disingenuous to some extent and that Capella, who's another judicial um, district manager, um, stated that, uh, you know, she thought that Capella was threatened by his intelligence and his uh, 
how how was she running the program, and that she felt very threatened by uh, by that, and that she was intimidated by him because he ultimately in our position had actually more experience than Miss Treble in that position. Um, focusing on the uh, on the pretextual reasons that the state outlined uh, in a March 6th, 2018 letter, uh, basically outlining the causes or the reasons for termination. It's our position that those reasons um, are pretextual. You know, a lot of times in these proceedings, courts will ask me, you know, you, these are just bare assertions that you're stating. It's our position, that, you know, we're kind of flipping on the defendant. They've made some accusations and they're pretty strong accusations that uh, Mr. King, um, you know, had sexual relations with two individuals, Mrs. A and Mrs. B, uh, Mrs. AA and Mrs. BB. It's our position that there's nothing in the record from, from, the, from the state stating affirmatively that that in, that in fact actually happened. Um, and in fact, the relationships were consensual. Um, I asked the court to look at um, our exhibit I of our summary judgment. Of course, counsel, the, 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 the protectual issue is whether the, whether the defendants, uh, whether there's any evidence that the defendants didn't legitimately believe in the non-discriminatory non reasons they put forth. Not, not whether, whether if we went to trial on all of those uh, 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 allegations of misconduct, uh, one side or the other would win or lose. Correct, and it's our position that Treble was basically in charge of the investigation, and so she could kind of manipulate the process to some extent. So it's our position, you know, there was a thorough investigation done on this thing, and the, the, the allegations against my client, and it's our position, are, are very, very weak and have not been supported um, through actual evidence, which, you know, the, the, I think that the, there's a quote saying that colleagues believed that there was inappropriate sexual relationships. But when I asked or when the attorney asked uh, Miss Potter, who is the HR representative, the question was, did you ever in the investigation discover that Mr. King had engaged in any kind of sexual relations with any individual? And the answer to that was no. And the, the, the state has continually argued, <clears throat> even in the brief now, that uh, Mr. King used it as a dating service. You know, it's our position that there's no evidence to that, and that's kind of an inflammatory statement, um, which is not supported by the by the evidence. Um, and they also said that there's an episode of Mad Men. You know, it's our position that that is also not supported by the actual evidence. Another judge, there was accusations that he was having an inappropriate relationship with a judge, um, who they never interviewed, by the way. We did, and we stated in our brief. Um, and they interviewed, you know, approximately 35 women, but they never interviewed key witnesses that would support Mr. King's position. So it's our position that the, basically the investigation was not a thorough investigation. Um, and so we do get to the issue of pretext, pretext in this case. And, you know, one of the reasons or one of the things that uh, plaintiffs can do is argue that the reasons for termination are not credible. So we're saying that um, they're, the reasons they gave are not credible. Um, and the reasons why is because the sexual relationships didn't occur. And by the way, there's an allegation that there was inappropriate conduct with Miss CC. So there's a total of three women who came forward over a 16 year career. It's our position that two of them were not substantiated. The other one, she, we, we deposed her. We asked her over and over again, what did he do inappropriately? Did you have sexual relationships? She denied every time that she had any type of sexual relationship of any kind with Mr. King. There was allegations that he went to a hotel in Sioux Falls with her um, when that was not substantiated. And she testified that her kids came with her and that Mr. King was actually 
in the Twin Cities working that day. So it's our position that those have not been substantiated and, and they're pretextual or we've proved them not to be true. And I think that's a factor the court should be taking into consideration when evaluating um, whether or not there's pretext in this case. There's also, there's also um, accusations that, you know, Mr. King was um, going over certain orders in this, in this matter. We, we actually um, deposed the judge who was giving those orders. The judge said he had absolute authority to do that and that Mr. King was in fact following his directive and orders properly. Um, so that in fact was debunked or proven to be false as well. So there's, there's very, very limited um, testimony that's actually true in the allegations against Mr. King. And even the ones that we do admit to, they're very, very de minimis in nature. Um, so it's our position that basically, um, you know, we've proven that their allegations against Mr. Um, King are false. Um, and so the, there is pretext for that, and we make it past the McDonnell-Douglas burden-shifting analysis. Yeah, I got one question. On, you, you made a, a legal law point in the brief that, that caught my attention. Uh, you basically said the board, and I think you, by that you mean the appeals, the appeals count, uh, committee's upholding of the termination. The board made credibility decisions, and that means we get to a jury. Uh, what's your best case for that legal proposition? Because because the pre you know the pretext analysis. The only question is whether uh, the board the board in making it in making its analysis uh, did something other than uh, uphold a, a non discriminatory reason. And if they did it for credibility reasons, fine. That doesn't make this a jury case unless you've got a case that I'm not aware of. Sure. So it's our position that, that under the Minnesota Judicial Branch Human Resources Rule, I believe it's 10.4E, and I'm going to quote it here. It says, in determining an appeal, the board shall not substitute its judgment for the judgment of the appointing authority, but rather the board shall determine whether the action taken by the appointing authority was reasonable under the circumstances. Wait, wait, so it's wait, our that, no, that's not responsive. All, all the panel, all the com committee did was affirm. I asked you for a, a judicial case saying that if, when the when the decision maker makes makes an investigation and rely and makes credibility reaches credibility conclusions based on its investigation that if credibility you're, you're, as I read your brief you're saying well if credibility is involved I get to a jury and I'm asking for a case that supports that proposition maybe I've misread your brief. No, I think that just goes to the, it's another factor that I'd like the court to consider that they did take into consider credibility issues and, you know, under the law. Of course they, of course they did. Any investigator has to. Certainly. And so I know, and I, I know it's maybe on a broader loop. It's the, it's our position that, you know, the, 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 the court should not be evaluating credibility issues. That should be a decision that should be made by the trier of fact. In this case, so we should go to a jury. And it's, it's our position also that trouble was the appointing authority. And so, like, basically, they couldn't substitute their judgment for her judgment. So they, they basically were there to, to rubber stamp that agreement. That's our position. Um, and that they did make some credibility determinations. And it's our position that those credibility determinations um, should be made by a jury or a trier of fact. Say, on the question of adverse action, do you say that the adverse action was the paid administrative leave? time or the termination it's the at, the at the time of the paid administrative leave and I, I would like to address this issue a little bit here 
Uh, I think it's well, a great before question. You, I think before you go further, just let me clear up one other thing. What's the timeline on that uh, with respect to when uh, your client made the report? How much time before the administrative leave and then how much time from then before the termination? Do you have sure, that in so mind? Yep, absolutely. So uh, October 5th, 2017 is the date of the letter where we say that's the protected conduct. The the notice or when he was placed on leave on November 27th, excuse me, November 20th, 2017. So that's approximately, you know, one month later or six weeks later. Um, so that's the time frame when he's placed on leave. And it's our position that that's the adverse action and that the, the ultimate decision. And when's the, the termination? Yeah. The ultimate termination was March 6th, 2018, which is approximately five months later. Now, why, is the ad, why is the paid leave adverse action if he gets full pay and benefits and so forth? I mean, because he, I mean, there still is some adverse action and there's, there's a Brenner case out there where there's a string of cases from the uh, district court saying that just being placed on administrative leave does kind of put you in a negative light with all the employers or employees. And I, I, I'm just, my, my experience is on this is I'm, what I'm very concerned about is that um, the, a really slew employer will start to say, hey, look, let's just put him on a paid administration for a year and then then we'll, we'll wait a year and then we can say, we can argue to the court, hey, it's been a year, it's no big deal, What's, what is he complaining about? I mean, at some point in time, it, it's the Moore case, and I believe it's a 2019 case, which is cited in our brief, where basically wow. the court does, does take that in consideration, and I would ask the court to take that in consideration. I think it's a very important point, and it, it also goes to how I would advise my client, but I mean, I think it, I'm, the concern on the plaintiff's side is certainly that I'm concerned somebody's just going to put him on a leave and then wait a certain amount of time say six months, the federal court's basically yeah. saying after six months, they're fine. Yeah, you're, uh, like, you're afraid they'll say, well, there's no temporal proximity because it's six months later, we had him on leave for six months, but if it's all part of a, an operation to cause the termination, is there any evidence? Well, I see, I guess the, the administrative leave was for the purpose of investigating the matter that ultimately led to the termination, correct? That's correct, Your Honor. Yeah, so you, you could say... Yeah, I understand. Okay, thank you. I would like to reserve the remaining time for rebuttal. Thank you. Very good. Mr. Wiener? Good morning, Your Honors, and may it please the court. Joe Weiner, Assistant Attorney General on behalf of the Guardian and Lightham Board. Uh, this court should affirm the dismissal of Mr. King's discrimination and whistleblower claims uh, for the reasons that the district court had in its order below. The issue in this case is that a person in a position of authority cannot use his job to coerce employees or job applicants into relationships. In this case, two separate women, years apart from each other, accused Mr. King of doing exactly that. When the board found out about this, they hired an outside investigator. The investigator interviewed these women who gave detailed information to the investigator, and the determination was made that these women had no reason to make up the stories and claim that there was something going on here when in fact there wasn't. Um, as a result of the investigation, the board also discovered that Mr. King had engaged in another inappropriate relationship with an employee, not a sexual relationship, just a relationship that was inappropriate, that he treated her better, that he gave her a job in his private production company, that he exchanged questionable emails with her that are in the record, and that he attended holidays and gifts and gave gifts to her and her family, including Christmas on two different occasions. 
And in addition to all of that, there were myriad other examples of additional misconduct. With all of this here, Mr. King has had more people and more entities take a look at this case than any employment case that I can recall. There's an outside investigator who did a thorough investigation and came up with the conclusion, and Mr. King's response is, the investigator was biased. It went to an appeal panel where Mr. King was able to present witnesses, cross-examine witnesses, present evidence. The appeal panel found that this stuff was true, and Mr. King's response there is, the appeal panel was biased. He took it to the EEOC. The EEOC said there's not a basis here for discrimination. And his response there is, this is irrelevant. And then after full discovery, after briefing and summary judgment, the district court said, there is no basis here for discrimination or retaliation. And Mr. King's response there again is, this is just simply wrong. The simple fact is, Mr. King's whistleblower claim fails for two separate reasons. First, in terms of proving causation, the only evidence that he has is temporal proximity. And the temporal proximity in this case is too attenuated under the case law in this circuit to constitute a causation for purposes of a whistleblower claim. And second, the board learned about intervening misconduct in between the time when Mr. King made his report and when uh, it began... It, some type of adverse employment action. And because of that intervening conduct, it erodes any idea that there's some kind of causation between the two. Mr. King is not a whistleblower. And Kristen Treble, who was a supervisor, when he brought this information forward to her, she thanked him for doing this. And then what did she do? She changed the process to address Mr. King's concern. And Mr. King admitted under oath that he had no reason to believe that she didn't legitimately thank him and that he never had any problems with her. Mr. King was terminated for gross misconduct, and for that reason, the court should affirm. Uh, a couple things in the factual record I just want to make sure is clear. Um, the first is when the board first learned of this uh, potential misconduct for Mr. King, they learned about it from individuals who had no knowledge whatsoever of Mr. King's October letter to Kristen Treble. They were at a uh, training. There was a, uh, a something about sexual harassment, and somebody pointed out it doesn't just happen in Hollywood and pointed to Mr. King. And then those individuals eventually raised that up the chain of command to Ms. Treble because they were concerned about that. When the board first started talking to Mr. King about this, his response before he even knew the, the subject of the investigation, was, what? I can't use my job to pick up women. That's what he says, and it's undisputed that he says that. After that, the board began an investigation, and they spoke with the first woman. And after having that investigation and realizing that this was a serious matter, they went out and hired an independent investigator, someone who didn't work for the state, to go out and do a thorough investigation. This is an individual who has over 500 investigations under her belt. She works for the state, but she also works for private clients too. And she did 20 different interviews. Her report includes 35 exhibits and it's 53 pages. And what it shows is that there was a relationship between Mr. King and this first woman identified as AA. He says it's consensual. She says it was coercive. 
there was a second relationship between Mr. King and a woman, B.B., and that relationship, they both agree, was not sexual, but that Mr. King used the opportunity for her to work with the Guardian Ad Litem program as a way to begin that relationship and start to have those discussions. There was the improper information about uh, the individual CC. There was uh, the fact that he referred to himself as chocolate cake, that he used the wrong data management system, that he withheld information about cases from the bench, and that he was untruthful with his boss, Kristen Treble, about work directives. All of those things were what the board relied on in making its determination. And again, as I said before, talking about the whistleblower claim, the only evidence that we have here is temporal proximity. And temporal proximity in this court has to be extremely close in time. And what we see, I think the best case for this that the court has identified is um, Smith versus Allen Health Systems, where the court said 13 days is sufficient, but barely so, to determine uh, causation on temporal proximity. Here, counsel, in terms of in, in in terms of our our case law of, on cases of this kind, who should we consider the decision maker? Uh, in this case, the decision maker would be Kristen Treble. It was ultimately her You're decision. Talking about the board determination, yeah, you're, that that's just in kind of uh, institutional terms. It's an institutional, yeah, you're correct, Your Honor. Yes, it's institutional right, terms. Ms. Treble, I think it's undisputed that she was the individual who ultimately made the determination there. Um, I think, um, as, as Your Honor's identified, there's a little bit of a dispute about whether the, the causal time frame here is five months between the time that he made his report and when the termination occurred, um, or whether it's the six weeks between when he made the report and when uh, he was placed on administrative leave. Um, I do want to point out that I, I understand the concerns that have been raised about the administrative leave cases. Um, the case that is identified here, um, that the plaintiff's or plaintiff is relying on, the Moore case, uh, in that case, the individual made a complaint. He was placed on leave for nine months. The organization completed the investigation after two months and just kept him on administrative leave for additional seven months and didn't tell him that the, in, that the investigation was complete. Here, it's a completely different situation. They began the investigation when they put him out uh, on November the 20th. They hired the investigator at the beginning of December. Ms. Soldo, the investigator, conducted that investigator in December and January and submitted her report February 22nd. And then less than two weeks later, the board considered that and uh, terminated his employment. Because of that, it's completely distinguishable from Moore, and that concern about an adverse employment action being used as some kind of cover so that uh, temporal proximity would go out a long way just isn't at issue in this case. But even if we wanted to concede... Whether, whether, or, not, whether or not... I don't know if that's quite... I mean, I understand the difference from Moore, but there's still the concern that if they've pretty much decided to terminate the man but they have to go through the five months of process before they can do so, that uh, there really isn't a five-month temporal proximity as a practical matter. But more to the point, the statute, as I understand it, says the test is whether the action might dissuade a reasonable employee from making a report. So on these facts, could a jury find that 
being put on administrative leave for five months might dissuade a reasonable person from making a report. I think, Your Honor, the answer to that is no. Uh, the only case that we really have that can speak to that is more. So those are the facts that we have. But in more, there was evidence that there was concern and that the people had raised concerns uh, about the protected, the conduct of the protected individual, and they were unhappy that he had made that report. And then you had the fact that there was something here that seemed to indicate that it was a sham investigation or a, a sham uh, process because he was kept out on leave for an additional seven months after they had already made a determination. Yeah, I, I don't think it's helpful to talk about more. I'm just asking under this statute on these facts. I think, Your Honor, there would have to put out on administrative leave discourage somebody from uh, reporting misconduct. If you know the consequence is going to be an administrative leave, wouldn't that deter you from reporting misconduct? And isn't that the purpose of this statute? Uh, I, Your Honor, I don't believe that there's any testimony in the record from Mr. King that this deterred him or he had any idea that this was going to deter him from this. What this constituted was a paid leave for him. And if it came back that he was innocent of this, he was going to be paid for that time. So I understand the point that Your Honor is making, but I think there has to be something more than simply being placed on a paid leave that's going to allow somebody to uh, reach that level. Um, but even if, if we were to consider the time that he's placed on administrative leave, that's still six weeks. And that is significantly longer than the time frame that has been identified in the cases before this court. Whether we look at the Freeman case, we look at um, Pulzinski, we look at Keel, we look at Mervine, we look at those cases, um, all cited in our brief, that time frame is shorter. And the only cases that um, Mr. King has cited that are different, that say that there's a longer period of time than two weeks or six weeks, that has created some inference of causation, there was some other evidence, either some type of animus from a decision maker or something that didn't uh, line up within what had occurred. And that is simply not what we have in this case. And additionally, learning about those, uh, this misconduct or this potential misconduct dilutes any inference that comes from the causal connection. They learned about this from individuals in November and if we were in a situation where someone said, my manager was sexually harassing somebody and the board did not conduct an investigation, they would be opening themselves up to liability. They had an obligation to conduct an, obli uh, an investigation here. And that's what they did. And it was a thorough investigation and it was a long one. And as a result of that, they came to their determination. Similarly, as your, your honors uh, identified, there's nothing here on the pretext piece either. The question for pretext is whether the board, and in this case, Kirsten Treble, legitimately believed that they were making this, uh, the, the reason for their decision. And what she counsel, relied on. Counsel, I was, I was going to ask you that because as I understand the interplay of the issues here, although the emphasis is on, on the whistleblower retaliation, intervening misconduct even if intervening misconduct defeats that claim, we still have the other claims that require um, the McDonnell-Douglas analysis based on the, the intervening misconduct. Certainly, and I can address yeah, that very quickly. Then we, then we get to pretext. 
Um, got two minutes. So what I'm going to do is I'll go to the pretext piece, Your Honor, and if I have time, I'll switch back. I, for the reasons in our brief, I don't believe that Mr. King's identified a prima facie case for the discrimination claims either. But barring all of that, the scope of an investigation uh, like this is not something uh, it's a business judgment, and it's not something that the courts generally look at and make a determination. They don't look through and say, you interviewed 20 witnesses, but you should have identified or interviewed these additional three. And we see that in the McCullough case, we see that in the Polzinski case, and we see that in the Mervine case. And there's a couple reasons that the plaintiff has given for why you should discount that investigation. One is that she was paid um, by the state to do this. Of course she was paid. Uh, that's why you hire an outside investigator to provide that information. They're not going to do that for free. And usually these cases go the other way. They say, you did this internally. You had this set in advance. You knew how you wanted to come out, and you did an internal investigation. Here, they went outside to do that. Um, and additionally, when Mr. King says that the things in here were disproven, what he really means is it was disputed. And again, if you want an example of that, what we're talking about is whether or not any of these relationships were consensual or not. Mr. King says they were consensual. These women say they were not. That's not disproven. That's disputed. And what happened there is the board made a determination about credibility and made that uh, and decided what was going to happen. Uh, Mr. King has not identified anybody who's similarly situated, who was treated differently than him. Um, the hearsay argument about not listening to, uh, I see my time's up. I will just say, unless the court has any additional uh, questions for me, uh, for all the reasons set forth below, there's neither a prima facie case nor pretext to satisfy either a retaliation or a discrimination claim for Mr. Clay, for Mr. King. Thank you, your honors. Thank you, counsel. Is there rebuttal time? Um, just a little bit, Mr. Sheet. You're muted. I know that the court's well aware of the standard, but it's our position that the prima facie case elements are there and that it's not an onerous burden on the, on the plaintiff. And I think we've clearly articulated those reasons. Also in our summary judgment brief on page 20, I've articulated why the investigation was not fair. And I outlined about six or seven reasons of why it's our belief that they're not fair. Um, and, you know, just to, to go quickly back to the points made by counsel, uh, there's no affidavit by Ms. AA submitted in this or Ms. BB. And Ms. Potter um, was asked specifically if, if he could have a relationship. It's on page 27 of our brief. And she says, I don't believe there are any actual HR rules that would prohibit a relationship with a volunteer guardian ad litem. So it's our position that that's not a legitimate reason and that's pretextual. For, for all the reasons in our brief, we ask that we reverse and remand and uh, submit it back to the trial court for a jury trial. Very good. Thank you, counsel. The case has been thoroughly briefed and argued, and we will take it under advisement.